One of the privileges we have, those of us who are older, is the privilege of maturity. When we look back at what our children do and when we look at our teenage children and we see the things that they believe and the things they do and they sound so confident but we know that the road that they're taking is leading to a dead end. We are very glad we're not 18 years old or 19 or even 25. There is a, there's a maturity that comes with, with age. And age surely brings a lot more problems, but at least we have been delivered from folly. If you tell your children that they are being foolish, they think, they think, they think you, you have no sense. They think that you, you're too old, you can't see things. But you know that they are making a lot of mistakes because of ignorance. They are foolish. They may shake their head, they may grin, they may not even agree with me this evening, but it is the reality. It is a joy and a privilege to grow and to mature. But one of the challenges in growing older and becoming more mature, at least in things of this world, is that there seems to be, with the passage of time, a loss of wonder that it becomes more and more difficult for us to be surprised by anything. We lose that innocence, that sense of awe and wonder that we had when we were children. You just have to look back at your own childhood and look at the first time you ever look at a look through a microscope and seeing things that you would never see with the natural eye. Or if you can never recall the first time you saw a butterfly. If you look at the little children, how excited they are, how they marvel when they go out into the country and they look at the sky on a dark night and they see the brilliance of the heavens. There's a sense of wonder. You are able to see the Alps or something like that and you see the majestic mountains. You go to Vancouver and you see the majestic backdrop of the mountains. There's a sense of wonder. And there's a sense of wonder that we had when we were infants in the faith. When we came to the scriptures and we were confronted with these marvelous truths. Truths that expanded our horizons. We wondered. We marveled. We were in awe. And the dangers as we get older in the faith, we come to these same truths and they lack in our minds, in our eyes, that which causes us to wonder. The Apostle John was not in this category of one who had grown old and lost his sense of wonder and awe at spiritual things. Here we have in chapter 3 of 1 John, this man who had spent many years in serving the Lord, a man who was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, perhaps the last of the apostles, and therefore he bore witness to Jesus Christ directly. And that has much to say as to how we look at Scripture. Because there had been always this notion, at least for a long time, the notion that the Gospels in particular were written after a long oral tradition. And that the early church misplaced, edited, and put a lot of what Christ said 
into places where he had originally not sent them, but they did so for their own benefit. John, however, was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospels that were produced were produced before his death. And therefore, as an eyewitness, his stamp of approval lies with the Gospels. It is this man who has spent so many years serving the Lord, who had been in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, who in this chapter, chapter 3 of 1 John says, Behold, a cry of astonishment. Look what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. John writes these words in an epistle written to believers to provide assurance, assurance that they indeed are blessed by God with eternal life. John makes this clear in his purpose statement in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, these things, that is, all that he has written from chapters 1 to chapter 5, he says, all these things, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So that the epistle of 1 John is written that believers may have assurance of their salvation. It is the will of God that Christians are to be assured of salvation. These things are written to you that you might know, that you have eternal life. But aside from the fact that he's writing to assure them of their salvation, he writes also to provide various criteria or tests by which this community of believers were able to evaluate those who truly belong to God. So John is wrestling with a group of secessionists, people who had divided from the community of faith. These were people who exhibited traces of Gnosticism, where they were denying the physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They denied the incarnation. They did not believe that Christ came really in flesh and blood. And John therefore provides a number of tests by which they were to identify those who were truly born of God. He gives them the tests of righteousness. The person who is born of God will not continue in sin, but will practice righteousness. He gives them the test of love, the test of belief, and so on. But in the passage where he's calling upon them to abide in Christ, in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Here it is, a test for those who are born of God, that they will practice righteousness. It is this that leads him to this statement in which he marvels at God and God's love for his people. And I began to reflect upon this just a few days ago, but I think that it is important for us to restate these truths. Take some time 
to ponder them again. I want us to look then at what he says in these first three verses of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. John calls upon the readers to contemplate the marvel, the wonder of the love of God. I want us to note in verse 1 the astonishing privilege of our status as children of God. John says, behold, take note, pause, and ponder the the love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's calling upon them to ponder the greatness because when he says behold what manner he's asking them behold the greatness of the love of the Father. Behold what manner of love. Behold how great the love of the Father that he has lavished upon me. And this term how great calls for admiration. It calls for contemplation of the greatness of God's love, God's agape. And agape refers to God's sacrificial care for his people. What one writer calls God's sensitive and kind, God's sensitive and kind treatment of his people. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. When he says, behold what manner, behold how great the love of God, on the love of the Father. He's talking then about the love of God. And he's saying in a sense that the love of God is essentially incomparable. Incomparable first in its greatness. Behold how great the Father has love for us. Behold how great the love of the Father for us. This love of God is incomparable. And as I mentioned just recently, it is incomparable on a number of fronts. First of all, it is an incomparable love because of the recipients of this love. God's love is for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And John places himself in the context of those who are loved. But who are those whom God has loved? He's loved the community to which this epistle is written. They were sinners. There were people who displeased God. They were opposed to the mind and the will of God. They were idolaters. He could say, little children, keep yourself from idols. It is these idolaters, these who were estranged from God, sinners, that God loved. You see the greatness of his love because of the desperate wickedness of those who are loved. You see the greatness of his love, this incomparable love, Because of the one who loves. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. This love comes from God the Father. This is a divine love. This is a heavenly love. This is a love that flows from the heart of God who by nature is infinite in his being. And it is because God is infinite in his being that his love for his people is infinite in its nature. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. You see the incomparable love of God because of the desperate wickedness of those who are loved and the greatness of God's love. You see something of the incomparable nature of this love when You consider what John says in 
1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another for God, for love is of God, and everyone who is born of God and knows God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is the love of the Father. He is by nature a loving God, one who cares deeply, one who cares greatly for his people. His character is love. It doesn't mean that God is only love. There is, a, I think, a mistake made today to think that God's character consists merely of love. God is a God of righteousness. In fact, in chapter 1, we are told that God is light. And it not only refers to the, to the wisdom of God, but it refers to the purity of God. Light often reflects God's righteousness, God's purity. God is love. God is light. These are not contradictory terms. They are to be seen as complementary. But God is love. God is essentially love. His being does not consist of accidents. His being does not consist of qualities that are not essential to who he is. All of God's attributes are essential to his being, and love is an essential characteristic of the being of God. You may say, to, you, you may say for instance, that the speakers in this room are black. But black is not an essential characteristic of a speaker. A speaker can be white. It can be any color. And so we would say that black is an accident. You see, there are no accidental properties to God. All his attributes are essential, and love is at the very heart of who God is. You see this incomparable love because of the greatness of sinners and because of the greatness of the one who loves the sinners. But you notice the incomparable nature of the love of God because not only of the greatness of this love to sinners, but because of the costliness of of his love. You, you, You go to 1 John chapter 4, and John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When the scriptures speak of God's love for us, it does not reside merely in the emotion. It is not first and foremost that God responds emotionally to us, though we believe that God delights in his people, that there is this complacency or delight in the heart of God for his children. But that God's love is in fact a costly love, a sacrificial love. So the love of God, how great this love is, it is great because it is A costly love. The costliness of the love of God makes it incomparable. How much does God love us? How much do you matter to God? How much does he value you? Well, he values us to the extent. John tells us in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. He loved us so much that he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the one to deflect, to turn aside the wrath of God from us. How did God demonstrate his love? By giving his Son. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the cross stands always as the definition of God's love. The greatest exhibit of God's love for us is seen in a crucified Christ. Not that we love him, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is in the cross where Christ was punished cruelly, where he suffered and bled and died, that God reveals his love. He bore our judgment, he bore our punishment in our place for our sins because of God's love. He was crushed, he was bruised because of God's love for us. It's an incomparable love, not only because of the greatness of this love extended to us from God, not only because of its costliness, but it's an incomparable love because of the durableness of this love. I cannot tell you how many people that I have married over the last 21 years, but I would suggest that there's a fair number there. And it's always amazing when you, in your counseling, you, you have two guys who can't even look at you, the two, you know, a young man and a young woman can't look at you, there's so much in love, you can't even tear them apart, they're just magnet drawing them together, they're just, it's amazing to see, you know, you, you just sit there and just watch that magnet just drawing them together. And you ask them a question, you know, so you guys want to get married? They say, of course we want to get married. And you start thinking, you know, did we make the right thing, make the right decision to come to this fellow? He's asking, do we want to get married? We're here for marriage counseling. Why is he asking that question? It doesn't make sense. And then you ask another dumb question, you ask, you know, well, do you love one another? You know, and then, of course, they think, no, we have definitely made the wrong choice by coming to talk to this fellow. And I've never met two people who have come to get married who didn't confess that they love each other deeply. But often, in many cases, after time and experience, love wanes. People who began with ardent, passionate love. We got older, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of marriage are willing to give it up. You see, human love is often very brief and very shallow and very passing. But not so the love of God. This incomparable love is a love that is costly and a love that lasts. It stands the test of time. It spans the ages. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And this language, the perfect tense being used here, has bestowed, means that God's love continues today and it will last forever. This is a permanent love. It is not a love that is going to give out. God does not get to the place where he becomes so frustrated that he turns aside. Now his love lasts. And that is why the great 
great Puritan preacher Edward Lee says, Whom the Lord loved once, he loves for all times. When the Lord loved once, he loves forever. This is a love that lasts. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed now and forever on his people. But this is an incomparable love. Not only because it is costly and durable, but because this love is effective. For he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. This is a love that is incomparable because it is a transforming love. It has transformative power. It does something. It makes us children of God. It makes us children of God. John gives us the purpose of God's love. The purpose of God's love is to transform us into being children of God. And there is by implication that we were not born children of God. There is a sense in which all humanity may talk of the fatherhood of God because we are all God's creation. And so God is a father of creation. God is not father in the most intimate of terms except by his grace and by salvation. Behold, what manner of love, how great the love the Father has bestowed on us. That, inner, in order that, we should be called children of God. This love is incomparable because it is the basis of our adoption into the family of God. It is love. It is love that motivates God the Father to receive us into his family as his beloved children. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called not even sons of God. We are often sons is used in a technical sense to mean that we are heirs of God. In a legal sense to refer to our heirship. But John uses the term that is, that is, that is, that is intended to convey the intimacy of our relationship with God. Technon. This is now a term that points to our natural relation to God. We are children of God. We bear his name. We belong to his household. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this adoption where he says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We are adopted into God's family. And that adoption is through the Spirit. It is the Spirit who enables us to cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit who joins us to Christ and makes us children of God. In other words, it is the Spirit of God who brings us in regeneration into the family of God. But the reason, the reason that we are children of God must be traced to the love of God. It is because of God's indescribable, incomparable love that we are children. John, perhaps was in his 90s, has spent the bulk of his life 
preaching the gospel. But he never ceased to marvel at the wonder of the love of God that was so incomparable and effective that it made him a child and all believers children of God. Behold, take a look at this great love of the Father that he bestowed upon us that made us children of God. Now John recognized that being made a child of God, though it is the greatest thing in the world, brings with it trouble. At least trouble from the world. And that is why he moves to answer what some see as a question. There were believers who perhaps were asking the question, now if we are children of God, why is it that we have so many, so many difficulties in the world? Why is it that we have so much opposition in the world? John says, in verse 3, therefore the world, in verse 1, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. You see, though we are children of God, we no longer then belong to the world. To be made a child of God is to be at odd, odds with the world. It places in opposition to the world. He says, for this reason, it is because these believers as children of God are different from the world. Their, their mindset, their thinking, their aspirations, their goals, their desires, their conduct and character are all different from the world. And the world does not know them. It doesn't understand them. And the reason it doesn't understand them, it is because it did not understand or know the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to his, world, his own and his own did not receive him. They love darkness more than light. So John says, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. We become aliens in the world in which we live. And you see that. You see it in your workplaces. That you don't pull in with your co-workers to buy lotto or to buy some and in some kind of gambling scheme, they think you are crazy. What happens if we ever get $10 million? You're not going to get any. And you say, well, you know what? God is able to give me everything that I need. I think I should work for what I get. That's the biblical principle. They think you're crazy. Who wouldn't want to have $10 million in their pocket? You see, they can't understand you. You are from a different planet, Pluto or somewhere else, but not, not, not from here. But they will never understand you. Why? Because you belong to the Lord. You're a child of God. You're not being governed by the spirit of this age. And John says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And so we see then the amazing love of God. The amazing privilege to be children of God because of God's love for us. But you also notice that there is a prospect, an everlasting prospect, that results from this status as being children of God. In verse 2, John says, Beloved, that is, those of you who are loved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, at his apocalypse, at his unveiling, 
We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John not only tells them of their great privilege, but he shows them the prospect that they have as children of God. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. This is our present status. We belong to God. We are his children. And God has much in store for us in the future. As I mentioned a few days ago, the best is yet to come. We, we do not know what the future holds for us. It has not been revealed. There are, there are the secret things of God that are only kept for God. God has not shown us the future in any details. So John says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We in this world, we, seem, we see dimly as through a glass. But when we see him face to face, we will know him even as we are known. So John says, there is much that is not known about our future. But there is this much that we know, that when we see him, that is when he is revealed, and we see him, we know that we shall be like him. We know we shall be like him because when he is revealed, we will see him as he is. John says there is a day coming when there will be a great unveiling, when Jesus Christ will be revealed in all of his splendor and in all of his glory. We do not know what we will be like, but we do know that when he comes and he's revealed in glory, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. That's the prospect of being a child of God. That one day we are going to experience what the older theologians call the beatific vision. That vision of Jesus that will transform us into his glory. That will make us perfect and sinless that glorifying vision that one day we will see him and as we see him we will be like him you see the entire purpose of God for us is to make us like Christ and as we live our lives in this world God is already transforming you but when you see him that's the prospect of the Christian you shall be like him. Yes, he will descend. He will transform our lowly bodies unto like his glorious body. We'll never be equal to him because we can never become gods, but we'll be like him. We will wear his nature as perfectly as it is possible for a human being to be like him. And we shall be to the praise of his glory. We shall see him as he is. And we shall be like him. We've seen the privilege. We are loved of God. And we have become children of God. We have seen the prospect. We shall be like him when he is revealed. But we also see the implication, the ethical implication of our status. We've seen the privilege of our status. We've seen the prospect of being like Christ, which comes because of our status as children. But we see the implication, the ethical implication 
where John says in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he's pure. What, is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be loved by God and to be children of God and to have the prospect one day of being like Christ? What does it mean? John says, everyone who has this hope, this hope of seeing Christ and being like him, purifies himself. Notice that this is not now a requirement. It's not now an ethical implication for super saints. But this is an ethical implication for all Christians. For John says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. That everyone who is a child of God, who longs and waits for the coming of Christ. That while he or she waits the coming of Christ, he or she must be engaged in purifying him or herself. Because this is what it requires of every Christian. Everyone. There is no exception. No special group. They have this hope in Christ. And therefore, they purify themselves. This task of self-purification must not be seen as an act that can be conducted on our own. John tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. So there's a sense in which we are definitively, as children of God, we are definitively purified. In other words, we are set aside, we are cleansed. John says that everyone who has this hope purifies himself. But Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so you were washed. He's referring to the believer's definitive cleansing or sanctification. There's a sense in which when you become a believer, the Lord severed you from your sins. He set you apart. You are not perfect, but by all accounts, you're now devoted to God. You're you're a godly person. You're set apart. You must live a holy life. But John does not refer merely to definitive sanctification. He refers to progressive sanctification. He says everyone who has this hope can no longer live comfortably in sin. That person who has been cleansed must now go on purifying, that is to disrobe, to put off sinful deeds and sinful thoughts like one unrobes himself of dirty clothes. He puts off dirty clothes. He washes himself. He removes from himself in the strength and the grace that God gives all moral defilement. He purifies himself. John refers to the present tense. This is something that we don't just do once. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies, meaning he goes on purifying himself. He goes on taking an inventory of his spiritual life. And every time a sin pops its head head up, he uproots it. He keeps on pulling up the sins that are there, the besetting sins. He cries to God for grace. But he goes on as a daily exercise of cleansing himself. 
You see, anyone who has been born of God, anyone who has a hope of seeing Jesus Christ, will make it his task in life to be a killer of sin. And it was a great, great Puritan, perhaps my most favorite of Puritans, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Everyone who has this hope, purifies, goes on purifying himself. Can we, can we not be honest? This is a task that all of us must be engaged in. Because we can never get to a place in life where we could say, you know what, I'm so pure, there's no more sin for me to deal with. I think that the older we become and the more godly we become, the more we realize how tainted we are and how prone to wonder we are and how sinful we are. The closer we come to the light. You see, you can be in the darkness and you see a guy, you think a guy is wearing a white suit that is perfect and unblemished. And then you put him in the sunlight and you realize that he's filthy. You know, the closer you come to the light, the more the imperfections will show up. And the closer you get to Jesus Christ, the more of your corruption and weakness that remains, the more it becomes obvious. Our Lord God has covered us in the righteousness of Christ. We are accepted in him. But we are to be like him. And so everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. He sets out as an objective of his life, a major objective of his Christian life, to live in purity. How do we do this? We do this by the Spirit. We do this as faith. If you live according to the flesh, Paul tells them, the Romans in chapter 8 of Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. It is only by dependence upon the Spirit of God that we can actually purify ourselves. And then Paul says, and then John says here, he says in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. He could have ended the sentence there. But lest we begin to become too contented with our efforts, however dependent we are upon the Spirit, whether we, just in order we do not become puffed up to think that we have arrived, he says, just as he is pure. Just as he is pure. Suddenly the bar is raised very high. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Now, if, if John had stopped there, you, you and I would have our own definition of what purity looks like. So that, but, so that there should be no confusion of what we should be like and what we should aim for. He says, and let me put to you the model of purity that you must seek to imitate. He says, just as he is pure. That the standard of purity is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal to which we strive. We've seen then the great privilege of being children of God because of God's great love. We've seen the prospect of the children of God that one day, when we see him, we shall be like him. And we see the ethical implication of being children of God in this life that we must purify ourselves as our Lord Jesus Christ himself is pure. My friends, I have but a few concluding remarks, but let me 
begin these by saying that you and I must never lose the sense of wonder that all that we are loved. It is a reality that the love of men is often tainted. Even the parents that love us, their love are not perfect love. We can look back at words said by our parents, actions that were performed, that were not done in love. But not so the love of God. This love, this love of God, this, this incomparable love of God ought to cause us to sink down before him in adoration. This morning we sang, Jesus loves me. This I know. This is one of the most amazing things. Even Karl Barth, the great theologian, you may differ with him on many points, and I do. But one thing Barth understood, that the greatest of biblical truth was that Jesus loves me, this I know. That you go out into the world, you must be amazed, not merely by the scientific discoveries, not only by the natural wonders of this world, but by the wonder that God loves me. And you need to have that assurance that in this life, though it may be filled with much tears and much sorrow, that you are God's beloved, that you are the apple of his eye. Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished, because that's what John says, lavished upon us. And God has lavished his love. You are loved. You may not feel it from family, you may not even feel it in your own home or from your spouse, but you are loved of God. And when you are in crisis, and when you are alone, and when you feel that no one cares, I want to invite you to contemplate the wonder of God's love for you. Not that he just loves the whole world, but that he loves you. And he gave his son for you. And you may not be special to anybody else, but to the king of glory and to the God of heaven, you are special. Behold what manner of love. May God help you to be amazed by it. And may God help that this love of Christ may constrain us. Paul says that we are constrained by the love of God. This love of God would capture us and constrain us to love him. Because we're children, we are to be hopeful people, filled with hope, that one day we will see Jesus and we will be like him. We must be people who are practicing because we are God's children. And if God is holy, then his children must be holy. We must therefore be dependent upon the spirit. We must crucify the flesh, put to death the deeds of the body that are displeasing to God. Because we are God's children. And we have a hope of seeing our Savior. May this drive us this week. 
knowing that we are loved as children, knowing we have the prospect of seeing him who is our Savior, and therefore doing everything in our power by the grace of God to live pleasing to our Savior for Jesus' sake. We're going to sing in closing the love of God. <laughs>